Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the CityWire Ratings Radar Show. Uh, my name is Richard Lander and I have, as usual, my esteemed colleagues Frank Talbot, Angus Foote and Nisha Long with me today. Slightly different tack today. Uh, it's not going to be about one or more sectors, as usual, but uh, about how Angus and I went to Berlin last week. Not just for a jolly, but to go to the CityWire Berlin conference. Uh, which, thank goodness, was was back in its usual format of uh, fund selectors and asset managers meeting together in the splendour of the Adlon Hotel. Obviously, we had to curtail it last year. It was all done online, but it was great to be back. People were really happy to see one another uh, face-to-face, which they haven't done for almost thick end of two years. Uh, so, more than 100 selectors there. We polled... Uh, a lot of them during the conference about what they were doing, the trends they were seeing, how their buying habits were changing. And uh, so I'm going to throw over to Angus because he's got the lowdown on that. And and maybe we'll start with ESG because uh, at a time when the whole industry seems obsessed with ESG, the numbers that we heard about the buying habits of the selectors was perhaps lower than we thought, Angus. Yeah, there were some quite surprising findings there. Uh, and I think they... Uh, they're worth drilling into because perhaps there's more nuance here than than um, than is at first obvious. Uh, before we talk about ESG, though, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, another question we asked, which perhaps gives an indication that all of this information has to come with a health warning. Because we asked the audience about hybrid working. We asked the fund selectors whether they'd invest in a fund if they'd never physically met the manager. Given that, that the Berlin event is a face-to-face event and everybody seemed really excited and enthusiastic about being able to do face-to-face meetings again. So when we asked if they'd invest in a fund without meeting the manager, 30% of them said, yes, they would. Virtual working gave them everything they need, which uh, given that they were sitting in a room at a, a, an event which was all about meeting people face to face, and they'd chosen to come there for three days and you know made all that effort. Um, perhaps you have to look uh, below the surface when you when you study these answers, because clearly they were keen on face to face meetings in some respects. So um, yeah, that's my health warning. But uh, ESG, I think, was was perhaps the most surprising. As you say, Richard, we've been hearing about you know practically nothing else for certainly the last two years. Uh, we asked how much of people's overall assets were now invested using an ESG approach. And uh, in total, only 35% said that more than 50% was invested using an ESG approach. Now, uh, 35%, I don't know. Is that a lot? Is it not? Um, of the people in the room said that less than 25% of their assets were invested using an ESG approach. In preceding years, not in 2020, because we weren't there, obviously, but in the three years up to 2019, we'd been asking whether uh, ESG analysis was now a standard part of their process. And the proportion who said it was had been steadily growing year on year. Uh, But this was the first time we'd asked specifically about assets. And uh, yeah, yeah, those numbers did surprise me. Uh, Clearly, they surprised you too, Richard. Uh, They did indeed. You know, I would have thought that 35% figure would have been much higher. Does it it, uh, perhaps reflect some legacy assets that they haven't moved for tax reasons? Yeah, well, Uh, 
but it was or or maybe it was you know they're just this is a journey isn't it that uh you know that they're shifting stuff over it can't all be done in one lump sum uh and they've got to you know the other aspect is they've got to take their investors with them well yeah i think that's true the legacy point is a good one uh, i think also there is an issue around asset classes because one of the other uh, questions we asked and, and a discussion that we had in in um, one of our sessions there was around articles eight and nine uh, and we, we asked the fund selectors to tell us we, we gave them five options to choose from uh, which were i'll read them to you uh, option one was all the funds we select must now be articles eight or nine uh, option two was most funds must be eight or nine, but it's not possible in all asset classes. Uh, option three was we're totally open-minded, don't have any limits or targets. Uh, option four was the designation doesn't work for us, we rely on our own research. And then the fifth one, which we only really put in uh, uh, to be comprehensive, was I don't know what article eight or nine means. So um, perhaps the most disturbing finding of the uh, of the event was that nine percent of the audience said they didn't know what Article Eight or Nine meant. So you can't blame them. If only we had, <laughs> yeah. If only we had two experts on. Oh, yeah, we do. Nisha and Frank. Well, so I should, but before uh, before we bring in Nisha and Frank, I should perhaps say that the uh, the most popular choice there was we're totally open minded and don't impose any limits or targets. Forty five percent of the audience um, chose that option. Well, the, re the really non-committal response. Well, I mean, look, there's, 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 again, there are important caveats. Whenever you do these kinds of polls, you're restricted by, you know, you have to ask a limited range of questions and quite often one question begs another. 33% um, 30, of them said most funds must be eight or nine, but it's not possible in all asset classes. There was a lot of discussion in some of the sessions around you know, what you do in the bond universe, for example. What do you do if you've got an offshore, uh, sorry, an onshore Chinese bond fund? Uh, somebody said that they, you know, they had such a fund and they had looked at getting it, uh, you know, designated Article 8 uh, and decided that actually you couldn't do that and retain your credibility uh, because the kind of publicity you'd get around that would um, would be so negative. It, it's you know, potential potential risk there. They they just didn't want to get into that area. Um, the other thing I would say, and and this perhaps uh, Frank comes to uh, I think what you were about to say. The ten percent who said the designation doesn't work for us, we rely on our own research. Now we know anecdotally that that ten percent includes some of the biggest buyers. Obviously, these results are not asset weighted, and and there is a there is a tilt. The bigger the fund selection unit, the more capacity you have to do your own research. So the less likely you are to use a kind of a cookie cutter approach brought in from outside. And Nisha, you're looking uh, you're looking <laughs> highly sceptical. No, no, not, 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 not sceptical at all. I just want to highlight that um, the full regulations haven't come into force yet. Um, so there are still fund management groups who are still assigning their funds eight and nine. And that's not until next year. So you're still seeing a raft of funds which haven't been an Article 8, you know, listed as Article 8, Article 9, or even 6. So I can understand why some of these um, fund selectors have opted at looking at them themselves because they don't have the whole universe in front of them. So there are, I mean, it's easier to look at some of the Article 8 and 9s, but there is a plethora of funds out there which haven't yet mm. done that process. It's a huge process. And I'm sure the smaller boutiques are finding it more difficult than the larger asset management groups. So I think we need to have that caveat in there that it's not just that they're not looking at eight and nine, they just don't have the full 
tools to actually assess all that information. And also, it depends on what kind of data analysis tool you have as well in front of you. For example, we use Morningstar data. And I know that that is, you know, article on eight and nine, they are regularly updating it, but there's some out there that aren't. So, you know, there are a few, you know, how they work as well. So I think that's why a lot of these groups are you know, orphan selectors are doing their own research and you still have to because ESG is so, well, it's so huge. What is environmental social governance side to one person isn't to the others. And it's all driven by client demand as well. So going back to your voting as well, you know what, if their clients aren't going, pushing them that way, they're listening to their clients at the end of the day. And that's what they should be doing because as fund selectors, it's keeping your customers, you know, talking to your customers, etc., and seeing where they want to put their money. So if you know, the, what these, these results are showing is that it's not there yet with demand from their clients. Maybe, you know, it is a slow process. Mm. Although this these funds why, are selling like hotcakes, though, all the same. Well, that's a good, that's a really good point. I was going to say, first of all, this is why we need, uh, to, to Nisha's points, this is why, Nisha, we need you and your analysis, because people like me, uh, I'm a journalist by training, so what I like is simple headlines and simple, strong results. So we construct these votes to, to give us what we think is a clear answer. And of course, the more we drill into it, the more we find that there aren't any simple answers. But to Frank's point, somebody else quoted a number to me that around about 20 to 25 of funds in the, Euro, in the pan-European universe are now Article 8 or 9. And uh, those 20 to 25% funds are seeing 60% of the flows. Now, w whether those numbers are pre precisely accurate or not, there the clearly is, to your point, Frank, there clearly is something going on there that, you know, it, it, the, the, the tilt in assets towards funds with that designation is, is going to accelerate the process. Is, is I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, if you're a fund selector on behalf of a big distributing bank in France or Germany or whatever, uh, on the one hand, you have the resources, you might well have the resources to do all this due diligence yourself and come up with something better. On the other hand, that bank will be telling its shareholders, we're very, you know, we're all about ESG and that you'll see that 80% of the funds on our platform are Article 8 or 9. So, and, and that's a very easy tick box for them. So straight away, you've got two trends or, you know, two trends, I'd say, bashing against each other, uh, which make, makes life tough for those. It selectors. does. But I think Nisha's other point is actually also really important. The fact that the, the full sort of uh, regulatory implementation of this hasn't actually happened yet. And people, so you can designate your, as I understand it, Nisha, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, you can designate your fund eight or nine now but you don't actually have to do the um disclosure until that i think it's is it july it's certainly later later next year that the um the implementation of the disclosure comes in so I mean, it's entirely possible that people designate their funds eight or nine and then when it comes to the point when they have to disclose what's in them uh suddenly uh you know it's decided they're not quite up to scratch uh, there, there could be a bit of a um I don't know. I don't know how you describe it, but certainly a bit of a, oh, no, definitely. a, a blowback effect there. Yeah, just a preliminary uh, insight into some research I'm doing. Just in the last two months, the amount of uh, funds which have relinquished their eight and nine already, which has taken off mm. the tag, it's, um, you know, because the full, you are going to be held accountable. So when, you know, these regs are 
in there, you have to disclose. Once those disclosures are, you're open up to everyone looking at that. You're held accountable. And yeah, so I just want to see that string of funds, which are eight or nine at the moment, how quickly they're taken off as well. Right. So the, these people are these funds. They're uh, they're withdrawing from the exam even before yeah. they've gone into yeah. the exam hall. Yeah. Interesting that they're not buying it. I wish I could have done that a few times. I was going to say, it's a tempting idea. Go on, Frank, what were you going to say? Yeah, interesting that the, 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 the only 35% of their assets, uh, or 35% of them, half of their assets, were, were were overweight into ESG, or ESG was the process, because of the 26 uh, speakers that came to it, I think it's around 20 were heavily touting their ESG credentials. So there is a huge clash between both what is selling best, what the asset managers are presenting to the audience and what the audience are then ending up buying so it is i guess as you say it's a journey it's a slow process of them getting their act together and realizing that this is important mm. i mean i as as you know probably any, any long-time listeners i am the issue skeptic uh on this panel uh but i i've changed my mind in uh, in recent months actually uh, and it, it's taken a lot. That that probably means that the, the bubbles burst, and that you should definitely run for the hills. But you know, I've I've definitely I've definitely mellowed. Uh, I believe you know, obviously, I always believe fundamentally, you know, to meet climate targets, every aspect of, of of our lives will have to change. There won't be any industries that that are untouched. But I wasn't so sold on whether ESG as a banner was the right approach to to investing in it to to recoup the most from it. But I, I, I don't really see any, any other way forward. And I've got no hard analytics no. to back that up. But I you know, genuinely believe that the, the sea is yeah. significantly yeah, changed. Yeah, I agree and with you, Frank. Back. Yeah, I agree with you, Frank, on that bit. I, I think you've touched on a very important point there. I think the E is massive, you know, of the environmental side. That's where the money has been going as well. So if you're looking at the flows and asset flows, where is it going? Look at all those funds. They're all environmental climate-based funds. So that's a tick box on the ESG. So, but what's happening with the S? What's happening with the G? Governance, you hope that they look at those, the governance of a company anyway, when they're looking at their analysis. But how about the S? You know, that's a little tiny subscript S, you know, in this whole process. So if you're going to take the whole of the ESG theme, strategy or factors forward, it is, you know, I think very infinite, well, infant just to have it just on the E side. Correct. I, I, I sat in on two workshops there, and both were for funds, two out of 26, so it's a small random sample. One was a healthcare fund, one was a thematic fund. So neither explicitly had much to do with E, S, or G. But, you know, the spiel came out. You know, this is how we select for ESG, this is our this is our filter, this is what our company does, we've got X hundred analysts working on it. So, it you know, it, whatever the fund is, obviously not if it's a coal fund or a tobacco fund but almost beyond that whatever the fund is the that esg talk will be in i there. think that's because the, two- the risks are too the risks are too big you know for for a, for a portfolio manager not to be considering the huge risk factor is is like avoiding political risk when you're investing in argentina or some other emerging nation not slagging off any emerging nations but you 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 kind of understand my picture if if it's not in your in your analysis then you are missing a huge potential pitfall there are two ways this can go though aren't there either so given that given the fact that the flows are going into the, the esg funds so either either more and more esg funds or esg compliant or article 8 and 9 funds get launched and they start taking the assets away from what you might call the legacy funds, which are not ESG friendly, or 
the legacy funds get converted into Article 8 or 9 funds. Their processes evolve and they become compliant. And, you know, in a way, whichever of those things happens, you end up in a world where absolutely everything has ESG baked into it somehow and the whole discussion goes away because it's just a necessity. But I also wanted to pick up on uh, something you said, Richard. You mentioned thematics. So I think there were two other two other strong themes that came through for me from all the, the conversations that... Was that a pun, Angus, themes? Uh, no, not consciously. Okay. Fine. <laughs> you're, uh, Carry on. You're, as you're, he, as you were. you're attributing too much intelligence and creativity <laughs> to me, Richard. I mean, thank you, but, but no. Um, so the, t- the two things that came two, two things that came through. One was around um, alternatives, private assets, real assets, call them what you want, and the other was around thematics. Now, the uh, people on the distribution side at, at the asset management groups uh, are are talking a lot about the demand they're seeing for new products and structures around things which were previously deemed illiquid. So private equity, private debt, infrastructure, all, all the things that we lump together under the heading of alternatives. Uh, and there does seem to be a real push to make these things available in the wholesale market. Now, I did a big set-piece interview with Masiki Dan, who's the head of fund selection at Pictay, very well known in the uh, fund selection world and uh, and a veteran in that role. Uh, he was saying that he was quite alarmed by what he was seeing. Uh, fund selectors essentially buying things or potentially buying things they didn't really understand and taking on risks that they weren't able to evaluate properly. Uh, so you can, uh, that interview has not been published yet. That'll be on the website in the coming week. Uh, and he goes into quite a lot of detail on that. But it, that was a common theme. This democratization of private assets, do people properly understand the risks? Is this, uh, uh, in some areas, an accident waiting to happen? So that was one um, one strong theme that came through. But then uh, thematic funds w- was another. And actually, just on the on private assets and alternatives, we did ask the audience whether private so this is the fund selector audience 72 percent of those said private markets and alternatives was a growing area for their firm um the biggest not the biggest section of the room 41 percent said they'd like to access these types of assets but they found liquidity is a problem uh, again one of the things that Mussey at pictay was was potentially alarmed about was people providers bringing new products and structures to market that apparently uh, provided liquidity around assets which traditionally aren't liquid. So, so you know, the, the real, the, I guess the structural problems that might be inherent in some of those products, uh, that's something to, to watch carefully for the future. But then we also asked about thematic strategies. Because, as you say, Richard, we've been hearing an awful lot about themes, thematic investing, thematic strategies. Um, we asked how much of your assets are invested in thematic strategies, and the biggest segment by far, 57%, had less than 25% of their assets in thematic strategies. Now, I, I mean, I, to me, there's a clear difference between thematic investing and investing in thematic strategies. You can invest thematically using any number of strategies or funds which aren't in themselves thematic. So I, I, I think perhaps that's uh, something that's worth thinking about a bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, again, 
it, it does show sometimes there's a disconnect between what everybody's talking about and what everybody's actually doing. Frank? I'm interested in something, you know, looking through the, the mix of, uh, of sponsors at the event, there was only, I think it's one, uh, presenting fixed income. And I was wondering mm. if you had any conversations around fixed income. The reason I say this is because uh, someone from our US team showed us a, a graph today of year-to-date flows in the US. And of the 10 leading categories for active fund managers, nine of them were fixed income. Uh, and obviously, the, 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 prevailing, the prevailing thought is that you don't want to be anywhere near fixed income. Now, obviously, you're in Germany, the heartland of fixed income investment in, in Europe. What, what were people saying? Uh, well, there weren't people. So if there aren't people presenting fixed fixed income strategies, then obviously there's not an awful lot of talk about them. Um, I, it's not a conversation that I had really. There was no there was no discussion I heard, but maybe that's just because it's not one I was likely to initiate on anything to do with fixed income. I defer to my colleague, Dr. Long. She's, no. <laughs> the, she's, the, I, she's the house fixed income expert. But I also think that the reason they weren't presenting there because it's not in vogue because of, you know, you're looking at inflation, you're looking at interest rate hikes possible. You know, fixed income isn't the place you want to be at the moment. And if they pay for this. So they're going to go for the strategy that is going to sell when they, you know, um, present it at these events. Yeah. There's also the point that fund selectors obviously want to select something that will make a difference. So if you're choosing between one thing and another, there needs to be some differentiator. So in the bond space, if you are, so there's an allocation, there's the asset allocation call and there's the selection call, isn't there? So if you decide that you're really not particularly enthusiastic about the bond space in general, you're not gonna spend a lot of time deciding between one or two similar products. Whereas in the equity space or getting into thematics or private assets, these kinds of things, people feel that right now they can make a lot more difference in, in, in the choices they make. I don't know if that makes sense. Nisha, does that yeah, make that... sense to you? Yeah, Frank. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I was going to say, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. But I just, I'm starting to question, uh, you know, my overweight to, to equities with very little in fixed income as whether or not that's just a wise idea for for the tail risk that rates don't go up and we and inflation doesn't, you know, materially come through like it is at the moment. These these things seem unlikely, uh, but I think the maybe the the wisdom out there is is a bit too a bit too sure that there's only one path going forward. And uh, and the, the best place to have your money is is equities because cash gets you nothing and, and fixed income is, is look the risks are too great. But I also think you know just going back to fundamentals um, with fund selectors as well and just investing in general diversification is key. So having your core portfolio in equities, property, you know those you know fundamentals, fixed income, all of that is still key. And then you have your satellite approach, you know those which are going to give you that kicker in alpha so that's where your thematics will come in so you know you are going to go into when it was china last year when it was healthcare you know coming into this year you know your energy real estate you know you are going to have your higher allocations in your satellite approach you know in your portfolio in that so you can still you know pick up those gains but i think you know you leave your core onto the side you know let that do for the long term what it needs to be doing i'm sure that you know investors are expecting that as well you know from you know their fund selectors you would have your core portfolio, but then you are dabbling in, you're looking at other strategies and fund managers who are looking at thematics in general, you know, where the market is taking you. Maybe those core strategies are tending towards passive, you know, because you don't have to spend a lot of time researching those. So you do that and then you 
put your brain power to the to the million different thematics and ESG funds. For the record, though, if any if anyone thinks I'm crazy out there, I'm not advocating for sixty forty portfolios or anything. I'm just saying a little more than nothing is uh, is probably wise. <laughs> a health on that health warning from Frank. Uh, I think that's a good time to wrap up. So thank you to Frank, Angus, and Nisha. Uh, and just to emphasise, it really was. Uh, good to be back in Berlin and see people again and you know the people who form the citywide communities of both fund managers and fund selectors uh, it was you know life affirming there we go I'll settle on that and say goodbye to everybody and see you in a couple of weeks for the next edition of the citywide ratings radar show <laughs>